1915, there was a man named Joseph who was born in Massachusetts. Joseph's father was an influential businessman, and his grandfather was the mayor of Boston. And both his father and grandfather knew that Joseph was destined for great things. In fact, they both had plans that he was going to become president of the United States. Even from a young age, his father and grandfather were committed to making that happen. They were going to use all of their uh, clout, all of their connections to make Joseph president. Well, a little thing called World War II came along and, and kind of disrupted some of their plans. Joseph enlisted in the Navy and became a pilot, a naval aviator. And in 1944, Joseph, this, this uh, future presidential hopeful, uh, had his plans all figured out. He was going to finish the war up, and then in 1946, he was going to join the House of Representatives, start his political career, and then again, go on to become president. Except there was a little uh, problem that happened in 1944 in August when uh, Joseph was a part of a top-secret mission where they were essentially doing the very first drone uh, technology it was the very first time where they used remote-controlled airplanes. They packed a B-24 Liberator full of bombs, and they were going to fly it remotely into the target and blow it up. It was a big, top-secret experiment. Well, Joseph's job in that, in that mission was to arm the bombs on the B-24 and then bail out and, and, you know, get back to safety. Well, he armed the bombs, but on that day in August, they all exploded before he had a chance to bail out, and Joseph was killed. So you can imagine his father and his grandfather were devastated by this. All of their, their ambitions for, their, for this young man to go on to become president were shattered. And so they had to do the next best thing. They looked at Joseph's younger brother and decided that they would pour their ambitions into him, even though they didn't think that he was really cut out to be uh, as good of a politician. Well, they poured their ambitions into this younger brother, and this young man, whose name was John F. Kennedy, went on to become president. Now, I love stories like that because, uh, first of all, I just, I love the fact that one tiny little moment in history can have ripple effects that change the course of history. I mean, if that bomb hadn't gone off, who knows what would have happened. Our whole, our whole country's history could have been different if Joseph had gone on to become president. And also, I love twist endings. I love when you think you know what you're hearing about. You hear a story about one thing, and then all of a sudden you find out, oh, this is actually about something else. I love that. Everybody loves a, a, a plot twist like that. You think you're talking about a World War II aviator, but you're actually talking about JFK, for example. Well, all month here at Grace, we have been looking at a story in the Bible that's kind of just like this. It's a story that you think is about one thing, but then it turns out is about something else entirely. In this case, in this story, it's, it's a story about the origin of one of the most famous men of all time, King David. And how some very small, even seemingly mundane moments, how these small moments in history led to the entire lineage of Israel's kings. The story is in the book of Ruth, and today we are going to see how that story ends. Um, okay, so before we open it up and talk about it, let me give you just a little recap in case you have not been uh, here for this, this series. that kind of bring you up to speed on where we are. Um, so here's what the story has been so far. The book of Ruth 
follows essentially a very vulnerable family. There's a woman named Naomi who's a, uh, she's an Israelite woman. Uh, she and her, and her two boys and her husband, Elimelech, they have to leave Israel because there's a famine and they go off to Moab, a distant country or, or neighboring country. So they're basically economic refugees in a foreign nation. And while they're there, her husband dies, her sons die, and she has to come back home basically desperate and, and uh, alone. Well, not quite alone, because she has with her her very loyal daughter-in-law, Ruth. So Naomi and Ruth return back to Israel, and Ruth is kind of spectacular. She is incredibly loyal. She's, she's relentlessly faithful to her mother-in-law. She's hardworking. Even as a, a foreigner who might not be super welcome in Israel, she works so hard to support Naomi. And so Ruth is, is really amazing. Anyway, Ruth and Naomi go back to Israel, and Ruth goes out to a field to harvest some grain to be able to, to feed the two of them. And while she's out in that field, we learn in the story that it, this field belongs to a man named Boaz. As it happened, and that, that phrase we use a lot in this story because it's clear that God's orchestrating some things, but as it happened, Boaz was actually a relative of Naomi, and, and he takes it upon himself to make sure that Ruth and Naomi have enough food. Well, one thing leads to another. Ruth and Boaz decide to get married. Uh, and it, it seems like we're, we're hurtling towards a really happy ending here, but there's a problem. This is where we ended at the end of chapter three. There's a problem. Based on the customs of the time, there is another man, another man who technically is ahead of Boaz in line. If he wants to marry Ruth, it's kind of his right to do that. So what are we going to do about this? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. So grab a Bible, turn to Ruth chapter 4. It's going to be page 227, 227 in the House Bibles, or you can follow along in your own. Um, as you do that, as you open up Ruth 4, I'm going to pray for us. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you uh, for the many, many gifts that you give us. Um, I pray, Father, that as we open your word, that you would be preparing us to, um, to be transformed by your Holy Spirit. I ask that as I preach, I would simply disappear, that your Holy Spirit would remain. And I pray that we would all have ears to hear what you have to say for us, to us this morning. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So a real quick little bit of uh, the world behind the text. You know, you know, I always love to do that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this whole situation. Why there's another guy ahead of Boaz in line, etc. So... Boaz, as we've seen in the story, is generous. He's a godly man, and he has declared his intentions to marry Ruth, who's also honorable, uh, virtuous, loyal. She's a great, great gal. So Boaz and Ruth sounds like a great match. Why can't they just get married? Why can't they just... Well, yet again, we are encountering something in the Bible that is just very different from our own experience. The cultural values of this ancient, ancient foreign artifact that we have here is... They're different, and sometimes cross-cultural stuff can be a little bit confusing. So today, we just marry someone that we love, right? But, but back then, marriage as a concept was wrapped up with so many other ideas. It was wrapped up with issues of family names and lineages and tribe, the tribe that you were a part of, and land ownership. I mean, marriage was, was much more complicated. 
And specific to this story, it's important to know that, that in Israel, in ancient Israel, there were certain individuals in each clan that were called family redeemers. The, the Hebrew word is goel. Sometimes people refer to this as kinsmen redeemers or family redeemers. This, this is a specific role that certain people had in the community, and their job was essentially to just make sure that their very extended family, their clan, was taken care of. Keep, keep the clan intact. Uh, when people lost their home or, or uh, maybe, maybe you know, became, became widowed or something like that, or they found themselves in debt, debt slavery, it was the family redeemer, the Goel's job, to, to bring them back from slavery, to redeem them out of that situation, to buy the land back and keep it in the family, and so on, to pay off the debt. That's what they, that's what they did. Their job was to keep their extended family, their clan, whole whole. Sometimes this even included marrying vulnerable widows, as, we, as we're going to see in this, in this story. Well, as it happened, Boaz was a goel, a family redeemer for Naomi's clan, which meant uh, that he didn't just have the ability to marry Ruth. He actually had a responsibility to carry on Naomi's family name. This was a part of what it meant to be a goel. Now, again, this sounds weird to us today. We don't have anything like this in our culture. There's, no, there's nothing similar to this today. And, and, and yet, back then, to the original hearers of this story, it would have made perfect sense. This is the way that their world worked. So, okay, Boaz wants to marry Ruth. He's made that clear. And as a family redeemer, he can. He can, he can even buy Naomi's land to keep it in the family. But as we read in chapter 3, there's this other guy. This other guy who is also a family redeemer, but he is more closely related to Naomi. So technically, he gets first dibs on buying her land or redeeming her land, and technically first dibs on marrying Ruth. So if Boaz is going to marry Ruth, which he wants to do, he has to convince this other guy to give up his claim. He's got to convince this other guy to say, no, I don't, I don't really, uh, really want to do this. So he's got to follow the law. He's got to, got, I mean, Boaz is an honorable man, so he's going to do things the right way, which means that he has got to actually ask this other man what he wants to do. Sounds risky. Sounds risky if he wants to marry Ruth, but don't worry because Boaz has a plan. I'll show you what I mean. Let's, let's um, read how chapter 4 begins. Chapter 4, verse 1. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That was Naomi's husband. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Now, Boaz, what are you doing, man? Like, you're not even putting up a fight, right? What, this is not what we want to have happen. How are, you, how are you giving way so easily? Well, this is why this is a great story. I told you in the first uh, first week of this series, that this is meant to be entertaining, that the author is adding some, some tension here, some plot conflict. 
Why, we, we've got to see what Boaz is doing here to understand why he would make it seem so easy to just give it over to this other guy. And by the way, the other guy is just like a rando. Like, we don't want, we don't want Ruth to marry some random guy. He doesn't even have a name in this story. Here, you know what? I'm going to name him Toby because why not? So just to make things a little easier, I'm just going to call him Toby, but we don't know his name. So Toby, this other random guy, is going to marry Ruth. That, what is going on? So again, the author's raising the tension. But here's what's happening. Boaz is actually working kind of a masterful bait and switch here. What he's doing at this point, what we just read, is he's trying to make the buying of this land seem like a, re- like a no-brainer to this guy, like an obvious thing to do. You see, the idea here is that if this guy bought the land, if Toby bought the land, uh, he wouldn't have to worry about losing it someday. Because in ancient Israelite law, and again, we're getting into some foreign ideas, but in the law, uh, all land would routinely be returned to its ancestral owners and to the, to the family that, that belonged, that owned the land. And so if Naomi, for example, were to have another son, well, that son would have a claim on the land. And so that would be a problem, except for the fact that Naomi is old. She's not going to get pregnant again. She's not going to have babies again. And so for Toby, It's a pretty sweet deal because there's no chance that Naomi's son is going to come along and take the land. So it seems like a pretty good deal. Now, there's a little quick aside. It's a little unclear to me that from what I've read of whether or not there's actually also a responsibility for caring for a vulnerable widow. Does does the family redeemer have to care for the widow as well as buy the land? Maybe. But regardless, she's old. The actual profits of, of, you know, having all this extra land, those are going to far outweigh whatever cost Toby's going to incur caring for Naomi, okay? So again, he's setting it up to be a really sweet deal. It made a perfect business sense at the time. And so he says, all right, yeah, I'll redeem it. And here's where Boaz hits him with this perfect bait and switch. It's like he's saying, oh, uh, yeah, one more little, little tiny detail here. Look at what he says uh, in verse 5. Then Boaz told him, of course, Your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Ah, so now the game has changed, right? The game has changed because Ruth is young. She could have lots of sons. And and, uh, the first one, of course, as I said, would have claim to the land. So her first son would get the land, not Toby. And the other sons that she might have, well, they would all get a slice of Toby's estate. So they would all start getting Toby's inheritance. Uh, and so all of a sudden, now Toby's in a, in a pretty, kind of in a pickle, because if he gets this land, he might end up losing a ton of money, not gaining it. So this sweet deal has gotten real sour to Toby. So he changes his mind really quickly. Well, then, he, then I, I can't redeem it, Toby says. I'm sorry, the family redeemer replied, Toby is not in there. Um, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. Now, in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Now that, by the way, interesting, is where we get the expression passing sandals. It's not a real, it's not an expression. I just, the blank stares. I mean, it's so funny. Maybe it should be. Maybe we should start saying that. But no, again, it's all very foreign and weird. We don't have an expression based on this. Anyway, anyway. 
The bait and switch that, that Boaz pulls off here is, is successful. It's perfect. Toby gives up his claim. And that's that. The path is now clear for Boaz to marry Ruth. Now, I get it. I mean, doing business deals by the city gate to essentially purchase the rights to marry somebody, that is not exactly rom-com material, right? That's, we're not going to make like a romantic movie out of that. It doesn't really work. But to the ancient readers, to the ancient readers, what we just read would have made a big impact. Because we already saw earlier that Boaz, he, he thinks so highly of Ruth because of her loyalty and because of her faithfulness. And what we just saw in a very ancient Israelite kind of way was Boaz demonstrating his loyalty and faithfulness back to Ruth. So it was a beautiful thing. I, 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 he used his power, his position, to bring healing into Ruth's situation and to marry her and to give her a future and a hope. I call that love, even if he never got down on one knee, okay? So now we come to the end of the story. Uh, we we kind of get the, the, the happy ending that we've been waiting for. But here, I, I find it interesting. The author sort of pans the camera back to Naomi, remember Ruth's mother-in-law. She started out as kind of the main character in the story, and she ends, we end seeing what, what this all did to her. So Naomi, if you remember, at the beginning of the story, was so bitter. She was angry. She was, there, there was this moment where the, the women in town see her and she snaps their heads off. She's so mad. Listen to this. Uh, they say, is it really Naomi? The women, the women asked. And, and Naomi, again, means joy. Is it really joy? And she says, don't call me joy. Don't call me joy. Uh, instead, call me bitter. Call me bitter. That's what Mara means. For the Almighty, for God has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Naomi began the story shaking her fist at God. But now we see, now we see that God has always been working through Ruth, through Boaz, to bring Naomi back to a place of life and joy and hope. Listen to this. This is verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town, there they are again, said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast and she cared for him as if he were her own. And the neighbor women said, now at last, joy has a son again. And here's the big twist. This is the part where we realize, oh, that's what this story is actually all about. And they named him, the son, Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. And David, as we know, went on to become the king of Israel. And all the rightful rulers of God's people from that time on, including Jesus, including Jesus, came from his line. Just like that story that I told you at the beginning uh, about a, a random Navy accident, which was really a story about the future president of the United States, 
in one sudden moment here, in one little twist in the story, we zoom out all the way and we see that this tiny human story of these handful of Israelites, suddenly it's actually a story about the redemption of the world, the grand sweep of history. Ruth and Boaz were the great-grandparents of a king whose royal line would lead to the healing of our entire world through Jesus. Now that, that is a story worth remembering and worth telling. So there we have it. That is the book of Ruth. What began in tragedy ended in hope and new beginnings because God never stopped working to redeem it all. God was working to redeem the story. So as we look back on the last several weeks and as we think about this story, I want to ask again the question that we've asked every week in this story. What does this ancient foreign tale have to do with us? What are we supposed to take away from this, from this story? How does it apply to our lives? It's a fair question. Well, I want to remind us of this fact. Our spiritual ancestors passed this story down to us on purpose. For, for generation after generation after generation, for thousands of years, they made sure that this story came down to us. And it was not just to share a really neat little story, a little happy ending story. No, they had a reason for passing this along. This story, I believe this story helps us remember a truth that can be very easy to forget when our lives are a mess like Naomi's. It's what we've been talking about all month, this, this truth that our spiritual ancestors experienced in their lives and saw reflected in the book of Ruth, and so they passed it on to us. They never want us to forget this truth, that God is working even if we can't see it. God is working even if we can't see it. Remember that phrase, as it happened? That, that phrase that we talked about, Tim talked about it a couple weeks ago, as it happened, it's just a, it's a dead giveaway that God is orchestrating things. Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem. As it happened, it was the start of the barley harvest. Ruth goes into a barley field to gather grain. As it happened, the field was owned by Boaz. As it happened, Boaz was Naomi's family redeemer. As it happened, their child became the grandfather of King David. On and on and on. Now, could all of these as it happens, could they all have just been coincidence? Sure, but that's not what the author of the story wants us to see. That's not what our spiritual ancestors want us to see. That's not why they passed this down to us. No, they want us to see God's fingerprints all over this story because this is how he works. This is how he works most of the time. Most of the time, God does not work through miracles and split seas and, and burning bushes. He works through the ordinary faithfulness of his people. Ruth's steadfast loyalty, that's how God works. Boaz's incredible generosity, that's how God works. Even through the prayers and the support of the other women in town, that's how God works. God was working through all of it, even if nobody could see it in the moment. That's what this story points us to. God is working even if we can't see it. All right, so what do we do with that truth? How do we, how do we live that truth out? Well, I think there are two big takeaways from this story that are worth chewing on this week, okay? And the, and the first one has to do with this. It, look, if God is really working in our lives, even if we can't see it, 
then we can trust God, that we can trust that God has not finished writing our story. If he's really working, then we can trust that he has not finished writing our story. Now, I know that this can be really hard to do when you're in the middle of hardship. Right? Trusting that God is still working can be incredibly difficult. And you know what it doesn't do? It does not answer the question of why God would allow such suffering to take place in the first place. Right? Remember, Naomi starts out this story bitter at God. She's in the middle of, of a difficult time. She's shaking her fist at him. Because she's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. And nowhere in the story do we get an answer as to why. And so here's, I just want to say, again, like I said in week one, maybe that's where you are and you need to do a bit of fist shaking. You need to be honest. Share your honest feelings with God about what's going on. How could you do this to me, God? How long, oh Lord? It's a very biblical, very appropriate thing to be that honest and blunt with the Creator. But... Even as you do, even as you, as you do a bit of fist shaking, the book of Ruth and our spiritual ancestors who handed it down to us, they have invited us to take a step back. Even in the midst of the hardship, to take a step back to see the broad breaststrokes of God's faithfulness and purposes in our lives. To remember, to remember all the ways that God has come through for us already in our past and to develop a bit of confidence that he's going to do that again. Not just in your life, in my life, but in the lives of those who come after us. It's what he does. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe just like Naomi, maybe just like Naomi, God is going to take the very hardship that you are going through right now, and he is going to make something beautiful out of the ashes. God has not finished writing your story. He's not done. He has not said the end yet for you. So that's the first big takeaway. You can trust in that. Trust that God is still working even if you can't see it. Hold on to that trust, especially when your life is a mess. That is the foundation of our faith in a still broken world. So that's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two uh, kind of flips things around a little bit. Uh, takes the same concept but flips it around. As I said, the book of Ruth shows us how God works through the ordinary faithfulness of his people. Through Ruth, through Boaz, through the, the women in the town, God brings redemption to Naomi. So here's what I want you to think about this week. You might be someone's Ruth or Boaz right now. You might be someone's Ruth or Boaz right now. What I mean by that is that it is entirely possible that it is your ordinary faithfulness that God is going to use to redeem someone else's story. Remember, as a follower of Christ, you are his hands and his feet in this broken world. Yes, it is Christ's love and, and generosity and compassion that transforms our world, but that love and generosity and compassion is expressed in this world through you, through you. What would it look like if you had this mentality, this mentality that at any moment God could work through you to redeem someone else's story? How would that change your day-to-day -to, -day to think that way? 
When Ruth show up, showed up in Boaz's field, he expressed generosity. He made sure that she and Naomi had enough grain to eat. Do you think that, that Boaz understood at the time that he was participating in a, a grand story of redemption for Naomi? Do you think he realized that God was using that simple act of generosity to pave the way for the coming of Jesus? No, he didn't. He was simply being faithful. He was, it was ordinary faithfulness as a part of God's redemption. Again, these are ripple effects, these ordinary small moments that end up having ripple effects that transform our world. And every now and then, maybe more often than we realize, God is the one throwing the stones. He's the one making these ripple effects transform our world. So if that's your mentality and that's how you see yourself, just think for a minute about how you might think differently about some very ordinary moments in your day-to-day -day life. Like when you're at the grocery store checkout line, Maybe you get a little ping from the Holy Spirit that says, hey, that cashier seems a little bit stressed. Why don't you ask them how they're doing? Now, you could walk by, and, and no one's going to judge you for that, but what if you said, hey, how are you? Maybe that is a little, a little bit of faithfulness, a little bit of ordinary faithfulness on your part that God could use to transform their life. You never know what that is going to do in their life. Or, or, I don't know, other examples. How about... Being patient, offering some patience when you've got that annoying coworker that keeps talking your ear off. What if you just offered him a little bit of patience? How might God use that? You're not going to know. Or maybe checking in on that friend that you haven't heard from in a while, but you know they're going through a hard time. You get a little ping from the Spirit to do that. Just do that. I wonder what God could do with it. Or saying hi to that person at church who, who always seems to be sitting alone. Who knows what God will do. Maybe it's being generous like Boaz, giving somebody some, some money when, they, when they're in a hard time. Or maybe it's being just faithful like Ruth, sticking with someone through a difficult time, even though it's costly to you emotionally. None of those actions are earth-shattering. None of them are, are splitting the seas like Moses. They are all very, very ordinary. And you might think, you might think that, or, or feel like if you were to go the other way in any one of those situations, that it, it might not have much of an impact on our world at all. You might think that. And you know what? You could be right. But you also could be wrong. You could be wrong. And if you say no, you're never going to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to show you what he's doing. God is working even when we can't see it. And look, that includes him working through you. You could be someone's Ruth. You could be someone's Boaz right now, and you wouldn't even know it. You wouldn't even know it. You could be God's instrument of redemption for somebody as he reveals the love of Jesus to them through you. You can't know for certain that that's happening. But what if you lived like it was? Say yes when the Holy Spirit asks, and you might just be astounded at the story or the stories that he is writing through you. Let's pray. Well, Father, if anything, this, this story of Ruth has convinced me that I'm probably not looking hard enough to see your ways of working through our lives. It's easy to get caught up in just the mundane day-to-day -day lives that we live 
And yet, Father, you're working even there. Would you shape us to be the kinds of people that look for and expect your hand at work? Not in the burning bushes, but in the ordinary faithfulness of your people. And God, would you help us to be those faithful people, to be those that, that day by day are growing in, in the way that we love to, to look more and more like Jesus in our actions, in our thoughts, and in the things that we say. Father, we want to be the kinds of people who participate with you in the healing of our world. So would your Holy Spirit make that possible in us and through us? I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we are going to be taking communion together. So go ahead and grab those elements. If you didn't get them, they're going to be over there uh, at the entrances to this room. Uh, if you're watching online, please grab, grab what you need to participate with us from afar. We're talking about ripple effects today, and, and I can't think of a bigger boulder that got thrown into the water than the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, right? That had ripple effects that have transformed all of our lives. And so as we take these elements together, I want us to just think about how much this world has changed because of what Jesus has done, how much your life has changed because of Jesus, and how much this entire uh, narrative of human history has changed because of it. Let's, let's ponder the ripple effects of the most uh, self-sacrificing act of love in history. So in a moment, you guys can take the elements on your own. Remember that the, the bread represents the body of Christ that was broken on the cross, and the, the juice represents his blood. As we uh, sing this next song, take the elements when you're ready, and remember that God created those ripple effects for you.